Well, in case you had doubted it before, summer is here. Uh, obviously, I don't have to tell you that. You know that by the fact that the AC is shut down and we have the mighty wind of the Spirit blowing from the back of the room. Um, so summer's here, and over the last several weeks, I've been asking myself and wrestling with this, this particular question regarding that, how do you choose a summer sermon series? How do you say that five times fast? How do you choose a summer sermon series? Well, a couple of things are helpful to keep in mind. One is if it's a summer sermon series, it's going to have to be wrapped up you know, August around that, that time frame. But another thing to keep in mind is that over the course of those weeks, you're going to have a lot of folks in and out and a lot of discontinuity with attendance. And so you need to kind of think in terms of, uh, of that. So with that in mind, here's where we're going over the coming weeks. We're going to look at the I am statements in John's gospel. The I am statements in John's gospel, any and all of them, they stand alone by themselves, but at the same time, of course, it's helpful to look at them as a corpus uh, together. But uh, we're going to be looking at those uh, one at a time uh, here this morning, or start, starting with this morning. This is something of an introduction, I guess you could say, to the series. Uh, some of you may know, if you, if you looked at that and, and explored John's gospel in this way, you know that there are, and it's oftentimes stated, there are seven uh, seven I am statements, Jesus declaring I am, and then, you know, fill in the blank. Um, in almost every case, well, in most of the cases, he's speaking in terms of metaphors. But there are a few other occasions in which he is speaking much more directly, much more directly. So we're going to explore one of those here this morning, one of those direct I am statements. It's not a metaphor. He's hitting us right upside the head. Uh, very, being very plain with his meaning and intent. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. Now, where is John in the flow of the New Testament? Well, first of all, it's in the New Testament. So it's the fourth of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John, Acts, and then the letters of the New Testament begin after that. Uh, we're in John 8. John 8, verses 48 through 59. Hear now the word of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, can we take a moment to pray? Oh, Lord, would you please put us there in the temple precincts that day with the crowd standing there, listening, listening in that place, listening in that moment, hearing you speak these words. This rabbi from Nazareth with his disciples standing there in the temple precinct saying these words. Would you help, please, would you help us to hear the wonder of this, the shock of this, that really we would be brought up short here to consider the startling implications of what it means for you to have said this. Would you give us ears with which to hear? and hearts that beat in cadence with your own. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, uh, as has already been said, uh, yes, Sarah and I were on a trip to the UK, a much a long-awaited and much-delayed uh, trip to the, to the UK. Got back about a week and a half ago. And for those of you who've ever traveled internationally, you can certainly chime in with me when I say, you know, international travel is not just like another road trip. There's a whole lot more involved when you cross into another country's border or cross their, their border. It's, it's not enough. It's simply not enough to have a slick itinerary or well-packed luggage. All your tickets have to be in order with no discrepancies whatsoever. Your passport and your identification needs to be clear, needs to be accurate, needs to be up to date. The customs officials who are looking at you and checking this stuff that you've put in front of them that they've asked for, rightfully, understandably, want to know why you're coming into their country. They want to know where you've come from and who you are. And they are not interested in any of that being communicated with any ambiguity or confusion. They're not interested in being left to wonder and guess and try and figure out who is this person that wants to come into our country. They want it clear, and it has to be clear if they're going to let you through. I raise that, this, this concept of clarity, clarity of communicating who we are, because there's something about that with what Jesus, you see, is doing here with the, the people there in the temple precincts and communicating who he is with razor-sharp clarity. Uh, we, they are, they, he is not leaving anybody to wonder. He's not leaving any, any room to guess or try and, leaving us to have to figure out who he is, who he says he is. Now, we may differ and we may quibble with whether or not he is who he says he is, and that's a whole other point, but it's clear who he says he is from this text. There, there's no question about that whatsoever, no ambiguity, no confusion. The only question left is, what do we do with it? What do we do with this claim that he is making here? How do we respond? Jesus is making clear his identity, his deity, 
His divine nature. He is making that clear. Who he is, we need to heed what he is saying. It's just quite that simple. It really is. Now, there are a lot of different directions we could go in terms of processing the implications of that and the significance of that. We're going to look at three here together this morning. The three, if you've got an outline with you in the bulletin, it's, it's where we're going. The first thing being the implications of who he is for our apologetics. I'll explain each one of these as we go. First, our apologetics. Secondly, our daily struggles. And thirdly, our social ethics, okay? Who Jesus is as the Son of God has implications in all three of these arenas, our apologetics, our daily struggles, and our, sex, our social ethics. So here we go. First, our apologetics. And by that, I simply mean this. What we say to those who are questioning or wrestling with the claims of Christianity. Okay, that's what, I simp- that's what I mean. What we say to those who are questioning, wrestling with the claims of Christianity. Now, f- with that, we, I want to go back to John's gospel and, and Jesus' claim here that we s- see. So what does he say? Uh, you, may, you probably picked up on this as we were reading the text. If, if you take a big picture, a macro picture, uh, a view of this portion of John's gospel, what you're seeing is the rising tide of great opposition to Jesus and his ministry and his teaching, what he is saying, what he's doing. It's coming out very clearly in the insults, you know, right there in the first verses that we read there with what they're saying about him, implying about him, and certainly when you get to the end of the chapter. What does Jesus say in the face of that resistance? Well, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I Am. Now, we need to be clear that what he is saying here, this is not just merely a claim of, I'm old. He's not just saying, I was around when Abraham was around. He's not saying, I'm 2,000 plus years old. He is saying, I'm not just ancient. He's saying, I'm divine. I am God. In the flesh is what he is saying. Any, any person there that day in the temple precincts, when he uses that language, their minds immediately would have gone back to the Lord's revelation to Moses, Leanne read it earlier from Exodus 3, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Let's go back and uh, take a look at that again. So we can keep your thumb there in in, uh, John 8. We're going to be tacking back and forth. Sorry, AV team, I didn't give you a heads up on this. So uh, Exodus 3, going back to just verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, what does this mean? A lot of scholars have spilt a lot of ink uh, over the years in terms of what this means. It certainly at the very least means that he is the self-existent one. Uh, God is the immutable one that is eternally never changing. He is the creator and sustainer of everything that there is and forever will be. At minimum, that's what this means. But when you look at the context, it actually means just a little bit more significant as all that is. You look at the context, and when the Lord says to Moses at the burning bush, I am in that context of Exodus 3, it means I am the one who is with you in this trial and will save you in and from it. I am with you, and I will save and deliver you from this trial. Now, here, here's the kicker. That's Exodus 3. Fast forward to John 8. 
Jesus says, that's who I am. That's who I am. Now just let the weight of that fall on you for a minute. Jesus is saying, I am. Now how did the people respond to this? Did they, here's the question, did they hear him? And the answer actually is they did hear him. They just didn't agree with him, if you will. They absolutely heard him and you can see it in their response. So again, back to John 8, 58, 59, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is more than just a strong disagreement. This is more than just they want to cancel Jesus. They are hearing him, and what they're, the way they're hearing him is they're hearing this as blasphemy. And for them, that can only then mean he needs to be put to death. He needs to be executed. That's the only thing that's appropriate and right, given what they have heard him say. They have, again, they have not misheard him. Note that Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 you, you didn't understand what I meant. Jesus doesn't say that. He withdraws, but he doesn't argue. They have heard him. They simply refuse to believe him. Now, this has major implications for apologetics, is the first point, just thinking about this and, and engaging with folks, perhaps some, some of us even here this, in the room this morning, who are wrestling with and, and questioning the claims of Christianity. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you knew I was not going to go on an inkling as a broad trip and not come back and fire a salvo from Lewis, right? So C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity, speaks powerfully to this point. What do we make of Jesus? What do we make of Jesus? Are we hearing him? Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he has a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come to with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was either neither, neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Again, the people around Jesus that day heard him. They didn't agree with him, but they heard him. Do we? Do we hear the edginess, if I can put it that way? of what Jesus is saying about himself. Extraordinary point that, that is well worth thinking about. Uh, let me press on to, to the second point. Again, again, Jesus is making clear his identity, his divinity, his deity, his divine nature. We need to hear this, hear this in terms of our apologetics. 
hear this in terms of what we can say to others around us, but not just that. This is where we're getting to the second point. Not just what we can say to others, but what we can hold to ourselves in our daily struggles. Again, his words here have implications for that as well. Again, we need to go back in time to Exodus 3 and think about it this, this, think about the, the, the question this way. Jesus is saying, let me put it this way, Jesus is saying, I am. Okay, who then is this God that he is claiming to be? Does that, does that make sense? He is saying, I am God in the flesh. I am the God of Exodus 3 the God you've been worshiping all this time, I am, who is that God? Just in terms of how he reveals himself here in Exodus chapter 3. Well, for starters, he is the Holy One. Uh, verses 4 and 5, then the Lord, when the Lord saw that he, that is Moses, turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. So Jesus is saying, I am the holy one. I am the unique one. I am the one who is like any other, any other. I am the holy one. He also says, I am the faithful one, pushing it a little further, verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God who makes promises and keeps the promises and is in it for a very long game, <laughs> is in it for a really long game. Now, we Americans don't do very well with this idea. We're kind of an impatient bunch, typically. Uh, we don't have much of a sense of longevity. So let me come back to our trip to the UK. Sarah and I had the opportunity to eat in a 12th century tavern, stay in a 17th century inn, visit a cathedral that was founded in the 7th century at Maudlin College, where Lewis himself taught for most of his career. At Maudlin College at Oxford, there is a building that was completed in 1733, 250 years after the rest of the universe had, university had been pretty much put together. And yet still to this day, you know what that building is called? The New Building. There's a sense of permanence when you start walking around and looking at stonework and seeing dates and all those kinds of things. There's a sense of permanence and lasting and stability. But here's the thing. It's nothing compared to God. Because you can also visit a lot of old cemeteries too and a lot of ruins of a lot of old stuff there as well. Jesus is saying, I am the I am. The faithful one, the holy one, the faithful one. Oh, could we ever say there's a sense of permanence about him? That's who he is. But there's more here that we can explore with, with Exodus 3. What does he do? What does he do? Well, we press into verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them into a land. Jesus is saying, this is who I am. I am the attentive one. I see you. 
How many of us need to hear that this morning? Jesus says of you, of his people, of you and I this morning, I see you, I hear you, I am your savior, I am your deliverer. The great events in the history of Exodus, real in the flow of the timeline of the world as they were, ultimately are but to signify and picture something much, much greater, a much greater and deeper and eternal deliverance that he has worked on our behalf, that we might be, our standing before his Father might be forever secure. Jesus, this is who he says he is. Now, as we take this to heart, who he is, as the I am, as we take that to heart, that can transform our daily struggles. And you say, how? I actually had a conversation with someone just this past week who basically put that question right in front of me. This is what this person said. I know Jesus loves me. Now, this is someone going through intense, painful trials and struggle in their life right now, okay? I know Jesus loves me, but I don't understand how that helps me with this. Oh. Now, this is not the way this person phrased the question, but I think it's reasonable to rephrase it this way, crass as it may sound. I know he's the I am, but what difference does that make in the difficulties and pains and struggles of life, which are all too common? And if we're honest, that's the question we're all asking. What difference does it make? We can't know why these things come. We're, we cannot know the answer, we may not even be given that answer in, in eternity. We, are, we cannot know the reason such times come into our lives, but here's what we can know, who has come. We cannot know why these things have come, but we can know who has come and is coming again, and when he comes, he's wiping away every tear and making all things new. All things new. The hope of the reality of this change that is coming is the counterweight, the counterbalance to our temptations, real and understandable as they are, into the, the mire and the quagmire of hopelessness, knowing that that change is coming as really as we're living in it now. It is coming because he is coming. And not only can we know that, we can know not only is it not forever going to be this way, but he is with us here now. Not in some sort of ethereal, theoretical, academic, studied, pseudo-plausible way, but really and truly because of a relationship he says he has with us and is true on the ground now, he is with us here and now. So we know the change is coming. He knows where and what we're going through, and he's with us. So we not only have a counterweight to the hopelessness, but even in the midst of the pain and the struggle, the worst of it, we have a counterweight to the loneliness. The loneliness. 
Jesus is revealing something of who he is to us. As we take that to heart, oh my goodness, the change that that can bring to our daily struggles. There's one more thing. Uh, not only does, and this is the third point, not, not only do we have something in terms of what he's saying, how he's revealing himself to us, what we can say to those who are struggling with the Christian faith, what we can say to others, not only when we think of the second point, our daily struggles, something we can say to ourselves, but also we can say, he is the one that I trust. He is the one that I trust in. He is also the one to whom I must submit. He is the one that I trust. He is the one to whom I must submit. Here we get into the social ethics. And what I mean simply by that is this. Don't, have a, don't go and have an allergic reaction on me. I simply mean by that how we engage one with another as people, individually, corporately, in whatever way you want to think about it. And this text speaks to that. Jesus as the I am. Jesus as the I am. He brings the change that we long for, even tastes of it in this life. For instance, in verse 10, back to Exodus 3, uh, he says to Moses, verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So how does this work? How does change come in this world, in this life? Well, Moses is to be very much involved. Moses is to be very much involved. He's, God says, I'm sending you to bring my people out. And yet at the same time, we see something. It's not just the reality of our involvement, but the preeminence of God's engagement. Skipping down to verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. And skipping down to verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And he goes on uh, from there. So on the one hand, we can say truly we are involved. We are instruments in his hands. But at the same time, we are but instruments in his mighty hands. And that is so humbling, right? To know that ultimately we are but instruments in the Lord's hands to bring change in this world. And yet it's also very encouraging because whose hands are we in? Whose hands are we in? Who ultimately is doing the work? So he is the one who will bring change. He is the one who longs and sets, well, this is the second point, sets the agenda though, sets the course for it as, as well. So we're thinking about, again, social ethics. How does change come? What should change look like? What should transformation look like? How does it come? Well, he sets, he not only brings the change, he sets the agenda. Two ways. First, he sets the agenda in terms of our relationship with him. We see this in Exodus, right? The Lord is the one who initiates this with his people. Then you look at uh, the first four of the Ten Commandments that are predominantly about our relationship with him. And you keep reading through Exodus, and you read of the rules and regulations pertaining to the priests and the feasts and the, the tabernacle and the sacrifices and, and all those things. He is the one who sets the agenda for our relationship with him. It's to be characterized by a response to his grace. He also sets the agenda, though, in our relationship with each other. He tells us this is how you are to live amidst one another. 
This is what it means to be my people. So then you get to the next six of the Ten Commandments. It's predominantly about that. And then you read on through his law in Exodus and through the rest of the Old Testament and through the rest of the New Testament. And we see that he is a, uh, deeply passionate that we would be a people of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And that typifying and that touching on every point of life, there being nothing, nothing that we could say, oh, this is sacred and this is secular. There is no daylight between those things because those categories do not exist before him. All is his. He as the king, the king over absolutely everything. For instance, let me just give you a few, just a few verses that make this very, just abundantly clear. Fast survey. So the psalm, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So how much of life matters to God? What's left out? To ask the question is almost to answer it. Or if you skip over and out of the Old Testament to the New, Matthew chapter 28. It's a text that we oftentimes just kind of camp out on and think of the Great Commission, and it is. But note how Jesus begins in verse chapter Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king over absolutely everything. He is indeed the I am, even though he doesn't say it quite that way in Matthew 28. Or as Paul reflects on who Jesus is in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, what's left out? Nothing. He is the I am. He is the great king. And in his grace, he has called his people, his disciples, to be agents of his kingdom in this world. Some of you may know that the PCA just met this past week as the General Assembly. This is the annual meeting of our denomination. And uh, one of the many things that took place there was the presentation and acceptance of a report on the topic of domestic abuse and sexual assault. That has come on the string of several other really solid reports of, over the last several years, studies of different kinds. In recent years, uh, some solid things written on same-sex attraction and racial reconciliation. And years before that, reports that have been done on pornography and mercy ministry and the role of the church and the state, the relationship between the two, and what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. And in the, in the mid to late 70s, a, a really solid paper on the topic of abortion which might well be worth our pulling out and dusting off. Unfortunately, through the years, and especially in our day today, many 
will hear about such efforts, such study committees and reports that have been made, and will say, why are we doing this? Isn't this a political issue? Isn't this a social thing? Why is the church involved with this? Shouldn't we just focus on the gospel, is oftentimes the way it goes. To which we should say, absolutely, yes, we should focus on the gospel. But what is the gospel? Jesus preached time and again. The gospel writers referred to it as the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And what it, they, they mean, what Jesus means when he speaks in the, of that topic is the reign and rule of God come down upon this earth far as the curse is found, in the words of Isaac Watts. Read his parables. Read his teaching. You cannot escape this. The gospel of the kingdom, which is what makes it such good news. And he has called us in his grace again to be agents in this world, even now, of his kingdom. Some of you may know that there is a, a new television series, a new Star Wars television series, and you know if there was one, I wasn't going to let that go either, right? There's a new Star Wars television series, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but I'll just tell you to kind of set it up. It's, it's set 10 years after episode three. Now, if you haven't seen that, well, then I'm sorry. I'm about to give you a spoiler. So it's 10 years after episode three with the rise of the empire and when Anakin Skywalker uh, falls and, and uh, turns to the dark side and becomes Darth Vader. Obi-Wan is now living in the deserts of Tatooine and is serving as something of a distant protector of 10-year-old Luke Skywalker. And Obi-Wan is a Jedi, and the rest of the Jedi are being hunted down by this group of folks called the Inquisitors, these dangerous, deadly servants of Darth Vader. And there's a line in an early episode. I'm not giving anything away. It's in the trailers, okay? There's a line in, in one of the early episodes, and it goes, one of the Inquisitors says this. Do you know the key to hunting a Jedi? It's patience. Jedi cannot help what they are. Their compassion leaves a trail. Friends, uh, the same should be true of Jesus' disciples. Leaving a trail. Everywhere we go, the scent of Jesus. Everywhere we go as his kingdom agents and ambassadors, for he has made clear his divine nature. And that has to speak even into the arena, maybe we could say especially into the arena of our social ethics. There's no ambiguity whatsoever here as to who he is and his claims upon us and the whole of this world. May we hear what he's saying. May we hear these claims with all of their edginess, however much they may comfort us, however much they may confront us, however much they may encourage us, however much they may challenge us, may we hear him say to us this morning, I am. Can we pray?
Oh, Lord, I fear for myself and for so many of us here in this room. We're, I'm sure, mostly, perhaps not entirely, but mostly a churchy bunch. Just like the people you were speaking there in the temple precincts were a churchy bunch. And they were able to hear what you were saying, and they reacted in a very hostile way, but at least they heard you. Oh, Lord, would you help us to hear? Would you place us there? Would you work even in our imaginations? Would you place us there? Help us to feel the weight of these words and the wonder of them as well. Because there you stand before us as the incarnate one, God in the flesh, our Savior and Redeemer, the very one who appeared to Moses in that bush and to your people again and again working such wonders. Would you help us to grapple with the implications? Indeed, would you grapple with us with these implications? This world needs us to grapple with the implications that we would be salt and light, that we would be a city on a hill. Help us to engage well with the watching world and their questions and their struggles. Help us to, as we wrestle with our own circumstances, our own trials and difficulties, help us as we consider what your calling is towards, whether individually or corporately. Help us, we pray, to hear you. Thank you that you are speaking even now. Oh, would you give us the grace to hear. We pray in your name.